Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the fifth series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore the impact of the sexual revolution, the death of civility, the meaning of evolution, the question of why some countries succeed and others fail, and the effect of the digital world on our brains. It won't have escaped your attention that we have a bit of a civility problem in modern Western societies. Even if you manage to stay out of the sewer of social media, or more fairly, the sewer that social media can be, you are sure to have witnessed people being rude, abusive, sarcastic and downright nasty to one another. In a word, being uncivil. You don't need to fall for the myth that once upon a time, people always engaged with one another with courtesy and honour to think that something is wrong. What exactly is civility, though? What do we mean by it? How do we justify it? How did it come to play such an important role in public life? And where did it go? Anne Hartle is Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Emory University in the US and the author of a number of books, the most recent of which is What Happened to Civility? The Promise and Failure of Montaigne's Modern Project. Anne, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thanks very much, Nick. Uh, Happy to be here. Now, for many people, civility means simply being nice or having good manners. But you use the term in a much more profound and expansive way, don't you? Yes, uh, I think good manners is certainly a part of what civility is. But I understand it as, in a way, a complete moral character. And that's why... I'm so interested in Montaigne because I think it's in the essays that we see the first manifestation of this character in its fullness. And I think, too, that civility actually does a lot of work. It's not just good manners. It actually is intended to replace the social bond of the classical Christian tradition. You mentioned Montaigne there straight away, and your book is very heavily focused on him. I do want to talk about him, but I want to come to him by way of the crisis of civility, for want of a better word, that we are experiencing today. Give me a few examples of what you mean by the decay of civility in contemporary society. Well, I think one of the clearest manifestations of the failure of civility and the deterioration of civility has to do with the suppression of free speech. For Montaigne, free speech was an extremely important part of the social character. And he enjoys conversation. He likes it to be lively. He likes disagreement. He welcomes it. He says, disagreement does not make me angry just makes me pay attention. So the suppression of free speech, I think, it's so often defended as necessary for civility. But in fact, I would argue that the suppression of free speech is really inimical to civility. Mm. And this is a suppression that you would find 
most frequently on campuses, say, particularly in the US. Is that right? Yes, that is definitely correct. Speech codes and the phenomenon of canceling people, not allowing certain people to speak, not being permitted to say certain things. This control of uh, speech, we not to offend anybody. Montaigne's character and the civil character that he's presenting, I think, is completely the opposite of that. Just tell me a little bit about whether you think that decay of civility has also spread into wider political life as opposed to that in, say, campuses or civil society. The reason I ask that is we all know that politics involves a lot of people shouting at one another. But you could argue that that's what they should be doing because politics is the arena whereby different ideologies clash and therefore it shouldn't actually be a particularly civil arena. What do you think about that? Yes, I mean, I think civility is perfectly compatible with very heated argument. The issue is whether there's something more than that. The issue is whether there's something more important than politics at stake. Whether community, on some level, the social bond, is something more fundamental than a political bond. And When you start to accuse people of hate speech, that stifles free speech and it really stifles the expression of the civil character. Mm. Presumably then there is a direct link between civility and civil society. I slipped that phrase in a moment ago. Civil society, that space of freedom that's permitted by the state. Does civil society depend on civility or is it the other way around? I think a civil society has to be a free society because the civil character is a free character. That is to say, it's self-revelation, which we see in Montaigne, certainly, and it's all about self-revelation, revealing oneself to others in speech and openness to the self-revelation of others. And so a civil society has to be a free society. Now, you've mentioned Montaigne a number of times. I want us to focus on him because he's absolutely central to your arguments. First of all, for listeners who won't be familiar with him, introduce us to Michel de Montaigne. When did he live? Where did he live? He was born in 1533, and so he lived during the the Renaissance, and he lived in France. He was a member of the minor nobility. He was a lawyer, but he retired from public life when he was about 38 years old and retired to his chateau where he wrote the essays. At a certain point, he was asked by the king to become mayor of the province of Bordeaux, and Montaigne reluctantly agreed to do that, and he served two terms as mayor. This was a time of the French civil wars, the religious wars. Montaigne remained a Catholic throughout this, but he was trusted by both sides, and he was a very important negotiator between Henry III and Henry of Navarre in the civil wars. And I think the fact that he was trusted by both sides shows the kind of character he had. He was above politics. 
Was he always about politics? Was that characteristic of him from his earliest days? Or was his experience of politics such that he ended up turning his back on it? I think it was a little bit of both. As a member of the parliament, he became really, at one point he says, disgusted with politics. Hmm. And that was one reason why he withdrew from it. He was very dissatisfied with the situation of the French legal system at that time and the idea that you had to pay for justice. So those things did disgust him with politics. Yeah. How was it that he managed to retain the trust of both sides? It's hard to overemphasize how much distrust, how much violence there was between Protestants and Catholics in France during this period of time. So this is no mean feat to be trusted by both sides of a vitriolic religious debate. What was it about him that made him trustworthy to both parties? What he says in the essays is he would never lie or betray any man. In other words, there was a moral code that he embraced that was more important to him than achieving his ends. And that's what has to be present in the civil character. Once everything becomes political, then civility is no longer possible. And that was his character. It was a character that was above politics in that respect. Mm. So he retires in 1571. He's nearly 40 years old. And he puts pen to paper. He writes the essays. And I think it's probably fair to say that had he died in 1571 after a minor political career, nobody would have heard of him. But he writes these essays that are a monument of erudition and sophistication and wit and intelligence from the late 16th century. Just introduce us to the essays. Well, the essays are three books of essays that he wrote over the years. And as you say, there's a cast of hundreds of philosophers, poets, historians, and so forth. But it's the way the essays were written. They don't look like philosophy at all. And they were directed not only to the philosopher, but to the, well, certainly to the nobility, his fellow noblemen, and to really the reading public. So they were written in that way. They're not full of philosophical arguments or jargon at all. And this is why I think so many people don't take him seriously as a philosopher. Mm. But the more I studied the essays, the more convinced I became that what he's really doing here is presenting a character, a moral character, a new moral character, that that's really the point. So that the way that he thinks about these things is what's really important here in the essays. And that's where the civility comes in, because this is very conversational work. And he himself says, I'm writing this to present myself as I am. That's a very important point, and you return to it a number of times in the book. He says at one point, the mind's principal and most laborious study is studying itself. So in many ways, despite the fact he's writing on a remarkably wide range of subjects and quoting a very wide range of authors, in some ways it keeps on coming back to this self-reflection. He's putting himself under the microscope. Why is he doing that? 
Well, I think that what we're seeing there is nothing less than the beginnings of modern philosophy. What's happening there is the modern philosophical act of reflection, the mind reflecting upon itself and seeing the world, not directly, but in terms of that act of philosophical reflection. So at one point, he even says, I study myself more than any other subject. That is my metaphysics, and that is my physics. So it's this inward turn, or as some have called it, the turn to subjectivity. Mm. It's very difficult to exaggerate the importance of that turn in philosophy. Yes. And Montaigne is sometimes bracketed with Shakespeare, who's writing 20 or so years after him, as as figures who, quote-unquote, invent the self. Now, I'm always a bit anxious about anybody who claims that any one individual, however brilliant they were, invented the self. But do you think there's anything in that, in terms of the, the concept of the self, certainly as we now know it? Yes, I do. And I agree with you. When I say that Montaigne invents civility or makes himself what he wants to be, It's not that this happens out of thin air. I think what you find in people like Montaigne, who are at the beginning of something momentous, is not that he has a good idea and imposes it on the world, but that he saw what was happening in the world. He saw the possibilities of what could come out of all of this turmoil of the Reformation, for example. And In that way, you could almost say there's a sort of prophetic vision in a certain sense. So when he articulates himself, what he is, he is really giving expression to a character that he sees kind of bubbling up Mm. in what's happening, in the break with the past and with the new forms of expression and social arrangements that are coming on the scene. Yes. That break with the past is particularly important, isn't it? You talk about his relationship to tradition and his breaking with tradition. And it's hard for us in the 21st century quite to understand the significance of that in the 16th century, when Europe has had an extraordinarily homogeneous collective tradition that has told people who they are and when they are, that gets disturbed profoundly in the Reformation. And part of Montaigne's project is almost to disembed himself, to take himself out of those traditions, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. But on the other hand, he realises the importance of religion, especially for the social bond. He recognises that. So he is not against religion. But on the other hand, he sees the modern world coming into being and he sees the effects of the Reformation on social life. And so he's navigating that whole scene of disruption. One of the popular buzzwords of today is authenticity being true to oneself. And you make the point in the book that Montaigne never actually uses that specific word, authenticity, but he does at one point write, the greatest thing in the world is to know how to belong to oneself. So there is 
a profound conception of authenticity in his work, isn't there? Even though he doesn't name it. Yes. I don't think the word even existed in French at that time. But when he says the greatest thing in the world is to know how to belong to oneself. So there's a kind of knowledge that has to be there. It's not just natural to belong to oneself, right? And when he calls it the greatest thing in the world, he's really also offering a very different notion of greatness. Mm-hmm. Greatness had been viewed as something like Alexander the Great, these noble deeds. So when he says the greatest thing in the world is to know how to belong to oneself, he's also passing a judgment on what greatness has become. And the other contrast I would make, I'd contrast this with Aristotle's politics, where Aristotle says no one should think that he belongs to himself. He belongs Mm -hmm. to the city. So this, again, is this privatization that we see in Montaigne, right? Mm -hmm where private life becomes the focus for him. There's also a strand of scepticism in his thinking, isn't it? I think I'm right in saying that he has this medal made, doesn't he, which says, is it Cursegeur, what do I know? Is it fair to call him a sceptic? I think there is definitely a sceptical strain in his thought or a sceptical moment in his thought. And I would see that sceptical moment as the break with the tradition. He reduces the tradition to mere custom, whereas tradition viewed by people who live within the tradition, right, is not mere custom. It has a divine origin Mm. and a divine authority, and it's greater than something human and arbitrary and contingent. So that's where mostly where I see his skepticism is at the break with the tradition, Also, his skepticism functions in his civil character because he says he's always willing to have his mind changed. Mm -hmm. He's very open to being corrected, to being refuted. And so the, the skepticism also comes in there. He's skeptical about supernatural explanations where a natural explanation will do. So I think there are ways in which he is skeptical, but not in the strictly skeptical version of ancient skepticism. Mm, Yes. So Montaigne has this dimension of skepticism about him. He's intellectually open. He's concerned with what we would call authenticity. He lays question marks against tradition. He orients himself towards naturalistic explanation. And above all, he is profoundly kind of self-reflected. He's interested in the self. He sounds quintessentially very, very modern, doesn't he? Right, right. And that really is the point. Does he also place an emphasis on tolerance? Because it's a 100 years before John Locke writes his great letter concerning toleration. And that embeds toleration politically within the English and then latterly the British environment. But does Montaigne anticipate him in his own essays? Yes, definitely. Tolerance is an extremely important part of this virtue of civility. Because, as he says, no opinions offend me. Mm. And that's one of the reasons I think he was such a successful or such an important negotiator in the religious wars, because of his tolerance. Is he also 
morally relativist. There's one point in the book where you say there is no universal form from which every human can be measured, which is directly from Montaigne. That leads to or could lead to a kind of relativism where there are no absolute reliable moral judgments. Is he a relativist as well? You know, that's a difficult question. I think I would answer no, he is not, because he does see this civil character as morally the best. He thinks there is a standard. For example, he says cruelty is the extreme of all vice. Now, that's Mm -hmm. a standard. That's a moral standard. And to the best of my knowledge, He's the first philosopher ever to say that. Mm. Now, what that has the effect of doing, it's taking the virtues and vices as they were known and studied at the time and rearranging them. So now you have the worst vice is cruelty. Mm. So what's the opposing virtue to that? Well, it's mercy, Yes, let's say, or some version of Christian charity. So I think... Yes, there is a lot of room for tolerance and a lot of room in Montaigne for doing your own thing. But on the other hand, there is a definite moral standard that is present in the essays. Your book is entitled, or rather subtitled, The Promise and Failure of Montaigne's Modern Project. And we've talked implicitly really about its promise, about how Montaigne's self-reflective, tolerant, civil conception of the human offers a way forward for public debate and, and engagement. But I want now, by way of coming to a close, to talk about its failure. Where do we see Montaigne's project for civility fail? Well, I think the failure comes, I would say, mostly because of the increasing suppression of religion in public life. When you get to the point of the Enlightenment, you begin to see it pretty clearly. You see it with Rousseau's civil religion, which he says is really just the rules of sociability. And I think this is why we today see this disintegration of the social bond and the deterioration of civility the suppression of religion in the public sphere. And Montaigne, I think, saw the necessity for religion. And I think he even, in that respect, was sincerely Catholic Mm. because he thought society needs religion to support the social bond. But now we have somebody like Richard Rorty who will say something, the American pragmatist philosopher, Mm. who says, Well, Christianity did not realize that its purpose was to make us more compassionate. But now that we realize that, we can just do away with Christianity and hold on to compassion as a value. And I guess that's kind of my point about why civility fails, because once you separate a quality or a virtue from its source— it withers and dies. Mm. I sometimes play devil's advocate in these interviews. And if I were to do so on this occasion, I would say, well, hang on a second. What happened in the French Enlightenment were philosophers like Voltaire and Rousseau and others challenging, questioning, 
doubting Christianity, but the Catholic Church in France in the 18th century is highly intolerant, and it's actually the church that is suppressing other views. And similarly, picking up on your second point there, a secular humanist might say, well, hang on a second, we don't draw our ethical tradition from revelation or from any religious tradition, but we still have a a robust commitment to, to public good and so on and so forth. So why do you say that these virtues, this civility actually requires religion when there are examples, plenty of examples in the past of religious tradition doing anything but fortify civility? No, I think that's a very legitimate objection. But I think that there's a difference between allowing disputes and arguments on the one hand, and on the other hand, completely closing off the religious point of view from the public square. So I'm not trying to deny the difficulties of the past, Mm. but I'm just looking at our own day. It seems to me that the suppression of religion in the public sphere is very harmful to civility because my main point is civility requires something more important in one's life than politics. Mm -hmm. And religion is a very good candidate for that. The connection there between religion and civil society, I think, is particularly worth emphasising. You say early on, civility requires non-politicised, non-ideological, free social institutions, including universities and churches. And I think this is a critical point, isn't it? That if everything becomes state, or indeed if everything becomes market, you lose that space in which civility can flourish, that free space of society, of exchange of views, which is non-politicised. You sense that it is decreasing? It's becoming smaller and smaller, I would Mm. say. I mean, the universities, with a few exceptions, are completely given to wokeness. So the universities are practically finished as far as that's concerned. And now it's gone into the business. Corporations have become this way. And the whole point of the social at the beginning of the modern era was this space of freedom where you were not regulated. Now, more and more, these social aspects of life are becoming regulated and more and more intrusion of the law into social life. I would argue that the more laws you have to govern civil conduct, the less civility you have, because Mm. civility has to be free. It has to be spontaneous. I wonder to what extent that is a specifically US problem, though, that in that I recognise much of what you say, but I'm also conscious that the constitutional nature of American democracy brings the law into a much more central place than, say, a common law tradition that we have in the UK. And therefore, I wonder whether these problems are sui generis to the US. And that's entirely possible, because if we tend to look at our social contract as the Constitution, which we do, okay, that's the compact, there it is, it's in writing, you know, we can interpret it and say what's unconstitutional and not. But one thing I would have to say, what struck me about the death of Queen Elizabeth and why it brought out so much affection for her and so forth, my first thought was it's because she was apolitical. 
She was above the political struggle. It didn't strike me as, oh, the Brits love their monarchy. Well, yeah, but why? And I think that has something to do with it. It's also interesting that her funeral service was held in Westminster Abbey and the coronation next year will be held in Westminster Abbey. There is a deep, religious, profoundly Christian dimension to the British constitution. I put that in heavily inverted commas because, of course, we don't have a written constitution. No one would accuse British politics from being overly civil, but I do wonder whether that's an example of what you're talking about in reverse, in that that embedding of politics within a wider tradition is one of the things that ultimately does help it function. I agree, and very much so. And I think when we in the United States hear recordings of or see what goes on in Parliament, to us, it sounds like, oh, this is terrible. They're screaming at each other. They're fighting with each <laughs> other. But I think that's fine. That shows something healthy there. Mm. Whereas in the United States, we don't have anything comparable to the Queen. The book is called What Happened to Civility? The Promise and Failure of Montaigne's Modern Project. Anne Hartle, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. Well, thank you very much, Nick. I enjoyed it. Next week, I'll be speaking to Mark Vickers about his book God in Number 10, The Personal Faith of the Prime Minister's from Balfour to Blair. I think there are two reasons that explain Prime Minister's reluctance to speak about faith. The first is the unwillingness to alienate people who don't share those beliefs. The second thing is there's a real desire not to appear to be hypocrites. They didn't want to be seen to be preaching one thing and practicing another. You've been listening to Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Lizzie Harvey, Daniel Turner and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes from the series and the previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes, It'll help other people find the podcast.